Hello again, friends. Welcome back to the Nextra Presents podcast. Our guest today is George Arari from Oriole Landscaping. George co-founded his design build firm in 1986. Oriole quickly built a reputation of high quality work and superior customer service. The company has won dozens of awards, including the Casey Van Maris Award twice for most innovative design in Ontario and the Dunnington Grub for best overall landscape in Ontario. Today, George and Grant are talking about equipment. George has a unique way of looking at equipment purchasing and the investment that equipment can be. And considering the current labor shortage, equipment might be a great alternative to staffing if you get the right equipment. We're grateful to Jim Pattison Lease for sponsoring today's episode. And now here's Grant's conversation with George Avari. Everyone, welcome to today's podcast. Today we have a special guest with us, uh, George. I've known George for quite a few years, uh, Landscape Ontario, and I've asked George to come on the podcast to give us a little bit of history uh, about uh, who he is. Uh, but we really want today to talk about uh, just a just a how to look at equipment differently. So, George, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Grant. Appreciate being here. Uh, so, George, before we jump into the equipment side of it, tell us about how you got involved in the landscape industry and kind of, yeah, the, the business you guys own and tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, sir. So, so uh, I started about 35 years ago, pay for university. And so we knocked on doors to get business. Not the right way to do it necessarily, but it worked. And uh, we learned the hard way. You know, I have a business partner, Peter Ganan. Uh, we've been, you know, at each other's sides for, for 35 years. Couldn't have done it without him. And uh, it's uh, it's been fun, difficult, challenging, exciting, um, depressing, and all everything in between. Awesome. <laughs> How is the um, yeah? So tell us a little bit more about Oral then. So you started thirty five years ago. Where are you guys located? What type of client? What's your ideal client look like? Sure. So we're in uh, Midtown Toronto, almost yeah, just just a little bit north of the city. Um, we tend to do super high-end residential and commercial landscaping. Um, we do design build and tender build. We have one maintenance crew. We have about 50 people. And uh, the ideal client would be someone with uh, a nice person with lots of money. There we go. That's a good way to look at it. So, so for those of us, uh, those guys that are listening right now, uh, we get a lot of questions about partnerships. And I think you and Peter have an amazing partnership. You guys seem to really know where your lanes are. Can you explain a little bit about, you know, does, was Peter there at the very beginning of it? And how is your roles, you know, maybe matured over the years or where do they stand today versus when you first started? Great question. So, uh, yeah, so we, I was basically, I started the business and uh, Peter was walking home from school one day and I was building a trailer from Canadian Tire to tow behind my mom's car. Uh, back then you had to assemble them. And uh, so he offered to help. That was his big mistake. <laughs> and then we ended up, uh, we, he ended up working for me. And I said, if you buy a chainsaw, a lawnmower and a trimmer, we're 50-50 partners. And that was it. That's how it started. So we paid for university that way. We paid for our big ski trips out west all winter. So we used to travel a lot. And it was really just, it was fun. There was no, uh, we're going to conquer the world. It was just, we just started doing something. Um, his dad was an architect. My dad was an engineer. So we had a background in construction. Uh, and they both put us to work at a very young age, uh, building all kinds of things around the house and the cottages. And yeah, so it was kind of an accident, to be honest with you, uh, the whole thing. In terms of us getting along... The first thing is both of us have character, right? Like he's honest, he's hardworking, 
he's thoughtful, he's caring, he's understanding, he's forgiving. <laughs> and, I, and, and, and the same goes for me, right? So we know we're not perfect and we have offsetting skills. So we don't, we don't think the same way and that allows us to fill gaps in, in the business. And that's the, probably the most useful piece of the equation other than being honest and trusting each other, um, forgiving, um, is to make sure that we, uh, we don't do the same things because there's so many different hats that you have to wear in the business. I'm good at some things. He's great at everything, but I'm better at others. And so between uh, the, the two of us splitting up those hats, uh, you know, I took a couple of the hats on HR and operations, and then he handled the, uh, the finance, the technology, and, uh, and we, we shared the sales and marketing basically. So, okay. So, okay. So that was the question I had is who looks after sales, but you guys have kind of split that role then. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. And what's been in your, like you obviously see lots of landscape contractors. What do you think the, the benefit of having a partner has been for the two of you? So, so I look at partnerships differently. So, it, so for example, if you had a, the typical contractor scenario, you had a husband and generally there's a very strong woman in the background. That's a partnership. It's not an official partnership, but the woman offers the foundation to the husband or could be reversed uh, where the support roles are there. And so the partnership is basically based on somebody supporting you and sharing the workload and adding value where you have weakness. There's a lot of you know, partnerships out there that's just not formalized where the support mechanism is the, is the, is the family structure or the, uh, the, the partner, um, you know, not the official business partner that's supporting the business. So everybody, you can't do it on your own. It's, it's impossible. I met one person. So I met one person who starts at four o'clock in the morning, this woman who starts at four o'clock in the morning, does her in, in by six and she works six days a week and incredibly smart, incredible, like just will outwork and outthink you. And that's oh, one so far. Yeah. That's it. I think we call them unicorns, right? Yes. So. Yeah. 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 They exist. They exist. But wow. That's it just hats off when I uh, see that. Yeah. So. Okay. Um, so George, I didn't give this as a question to you in advance, but obviously 35 years within the industry. And then the last two years have been completely crazy. So I guess uh, if you were to put kind of a crystal ball together right now, um, you know, pre-COVID, where did you see the industry, um, you know, the changes that have made? And then kind of where do you see this next year, two years, three years going as far as an industry? So I've been through a lot of ups and downs, 35 years. Um, and uh, typically the, the idea would be that if, if the economy is going south, luxury items like landscaping would be cut. What happened in the pandemic was people didn't spend money on travel, so that was substituted with landscaping. I think there's going to be a bit of a balancing out coming. Um, I think that there's going to be a lot of consolidation in the industry because there's more and more regulation, more and more red tape. You know, when we started, we we basically parked our triaxle trailer and Bobcat and F450 in front of my house, and no one complained. You know, you can't do that anymore. So it's harder to start businesses. It's harder to run businesses. There's more, um, you know, government constraints. And so I see some consolidation happening over time, for sure. Yeah, basically, the other thing that's true is that your home is your final investment that you don't have to pay any tax on uh, when it appreciates. And so it makes sense to invest in your home. And I think that will continue to be, be the case unless the government changes the law and tries to claw back some money from, their, from the primary residences. 
the interest rates are incredibly low. So things like um, uh, reverse mortgages, things like that to finance lifestyles are going to kick in because people have homes that are worth millions and millions of dollars and all that equity is tied up. They never thought it would appreciate as much as it did. And so I think there'll be, um, there'll be lots of landscaping. And I think also there's going to be a generation of wealth transfer that happens where um, you know, the boomers are going to basically transfer wealth to the, to the younger generations and uh, they're going to spend all that money and they're going to want to landscape and all those other things. So I'm very optimistic about our future. I think that, um, you know, green is good and, uh, and that people have sort of settled in on that outdoors with COVID people have been so claustrophobic that just anything outdoors is associated with fantastic. I see, I see it as a growth, but I see consolidation and, and we're becoming more professional too, as an industry. I think, you know, compared to how I started, people are a lot further ahead, you know, offering wisdom uh, to people at an earlier stage. We didn't have anybody. I think uh, we had Charles Vanderkoy basically telling us how to estimate back in the day. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really evolved. That Landscape Ontario has become far more professional and organized and advocating for us. So there's a lot of really positive benefits, I think, in terms of future growth for the industry. Yeah. Okay. So when you say consolidation, what do you see for the for the contractor there doesn't understand that? What do you see consolidation happening? Like how do you practically see that happening? So there's a couple of uh, possibilities. One is people just kind of join the board or a bigger company. The other one where there might be, um, you know, you join a company, you get shares in the company, that type of thing. Um, so less companies, bigger companies, more organized companies, you know, and um, the value of the landscapes has been going up that people are spending. So there's less sort of smaller projects going on, a lot, lot more larger projects. And I think that also requires, um, uh, you know, larger companies to do the work. So uh, there's also a big labor shortage as well, right? So it's easier to join a group than it is to try and fight it on your own with scarce resources. So from that perspective, I think there's just going to be pressure to have, and it's happened in the States already where there's a lot larger companies than there are here. Um, I, that's the trend that I see happening slowly but surely. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of owners right now, even we're recording this in, you know, the early, I guess, late winter, early spring. Of, I know a lot of contractors we talk to, that's what's keeping them up at night is this labor shortage, right? We've sold the work. Yeah. Um, you know, getting the materials is going to be a little bit harder, but that's what's keeping them up. So. Yeah. And so the, the, the one it's, it's bad news, but by the same token, it means that there's less people available to do the work, which means the prices are higher. Mm-hmm. So, so it's not necessarily a negative thing. The trick is to become more effective and more efficient uh, with what you have. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I think that's why this, the, the whole thing about how to maximize the, your equipment is important because there's not the labor. Uh, we just can't throw more labor at stuff, right? Like that was typically the solution for a lot of things that's right. for many of us was just get another guy. Right. And uh, he'll be able to dig the hole faster and all that type of stuff. So, um, so George, what's your current role within oil right now? Like you're going through a transition. What does that look like? And yeah. uh, how does, how has that happened? So great question. So what I, my role now is what's called chief improvement officer. So I literally do nothing that's day to day. I only work on improvements to the business. And most of those are, it's almost all process improvements. So what I want to do is do things in the least difficult way with the least friction in the least amount of time. And so what we've done is we've created some really cool concepts called flow efficiency meetings. And they're basically 
organizing all meetings in the company, weekly, uh, monthly, quarterly, annually, with preset agendas. And they're at the same time, they're already set up in everybody's calendar. They can do them from home. They can do them from the job site. And uh, what happens is it's kind of like the broken telephone where, you know, I know something and then I tell you and then you tell somebody and then you never go around telling the fourth person and we lose it. Whereas what we're trying to do now is create these meetings with agendas. So I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say in our operations meeting, um, let's say you're using a timekeeping app and um, you've got to update the timekeeping app, but you've got so many things you never get around to it. You end up with this massive cluttered list of client addresses and change orders and people don't know where to clock in. But if in a meeting you had one of the agenda items was let's update the timekeeping and delete all the clients who are finished, uh, delete all the change orders that are finished, then it's easier for people to clock into the right thing. So you don't have with, you know, like people clocking in the wrong, wrong project or the wrong change order and you end up with like chaos. So those little things add up and it creates an opportunity to make it happen in the meeting and so it's kind of like a team practice for a soccer team where you go and you practice the drills, you do them over, you become proficient, you play the game, you win, you measure, you come back, you do it again. And that's the idea of a meeting. So meetings have bad connotations generally. People, people think meetings are bad, but there, there is such a thing as a good meeting. And uh, the trick is to have a meeting leader. And the other cool thing about the meetings is if you have the same people in the meeting for a year, every week, what happens is any one of them can run the meeting. So if I'm sick, it doesn't matter. Or if I want to extract myself from a position, I can do that uh, because the team will take over, right? The practice will happen despite the fact that I'm not there. And so I equate meetings to practices. And that's where we learn uh, from other people's mistakes or other experiences together. And then we, we don't learn the hard way by, by doing it independently ourselves. Um, we even have meetings like we have what we call a um, disaster mitigation meeting. That's what we call it. Okay. And uh, and so what we do is every Wednesday at noon, we review every design and every estimate with the team. So we learn from each other and we have a list. It's a lot of things. It takes a while. But if you catch one mistake that costs you 10,000 bucks and the meeting costs 200 bucks, yeah. there are tens and tens and tens and tens of thousands of dollars of mistakes that are caught before they happen. And so you start to realize the value of the meeting when you start actually and people learn, right? It's also like they learn. The new person learns. The old person can, can, in one meeting, transfer the information. And because we sequence everything in logical order of operations, because I'm, I'm an order nut, that's what I like to do. I like to organize things. You, you can't forget anything because this is what happens. This is what's most important. This is what's least important. And away we go. So, yeah. Okay. So it's like, hey, we learned from this process. Here's the mistake we made. Here's the dollar figure. And these meetings allow people to learn from it and make the changes that most companies don't do. They, they realize they made right. a mistake, but they don't make the corrections. Needed That's to right. Not make it right. again. And, and you grow leaders in the meetings, right? You, you can see who the next leader is going to be because when they start to run a meeting, you can see how effective they, they run the meeting. So it's, it's an opportunity to build leaders as well. So. Okay. George, were you always, did you always think like this within the business as it, over the last years, or this is something you've just kind of learned and implemented in the business? I did a, I did a number of psychological profiles and I'm in the top two percentile of organized people. So, so my mind is wired to organize things and I'm lazy by nature. I work hard, but I'm lazy. If that makes sense. You know, again, example, let's say you had a walkway that had a 90 degree angle on it for sure. I'm cutting the corner. 
So I might as well just design the cut corner into the process because I know it's going to happen. And so that's sort of what I, what I do and everything that it could be physical, administrative, it doesn't matter. Even my own kitchen, if you saw my kitchen, um, it's kind of madness the way it's organized. Um, I even label closets and maybe it's a sickness. I don't know, but it's effective. Okay. So, but that's naturally how you're wired. You have to think about this, just how you see yeah. the world and how you see yeah. it. So. Yeah. And then what's good about it is that, um, but everything I do is always make, I make sure it's the least steps and, and I, you know, it's stupid, smart or idiot proof. Right. So I want to make it easy because if it's easy, you're going to do it. If it's not easy, most people are not going to do it. Mm-hmm. So the goal is let's figure out how to make this super easy, make it pleasant, least friction possible. Yeah, I was at a Landscape Ontario event. You guys hosted a Landscape Ontario event a couple summers ago. It probably just yeah. like last summer, uh, but it was just amazing to see how much uh, efficiency you guys had on your small little property that you have, uh, right? Obviously, downtown Toronto, real estate is a premium, right. but just how you take advantage of it um, is is incredible. Like I know there were so many contractors walking around just blown away by the efficiency you have in the, in the real estate you have. And we've taken that to uh, like, because we were into continual improvement ties in so that's at, if you came back now you, it's at a whole other level like it's just insane so we never stop the improvements uh big or small and it's fun right it's actually fun and people like the, everybody benefits it's less work basically mm-hmm. okay all right we're just gonna take a quick break from one of our sponsors and then we'll get back and we'll jump into uh talking about equipment We are grateful for this year's podcast sponsor, Jim Pattison Lease. This year, Jim Pattison Lease celebrates its 60th anniversary. It was 60 years ago that Jim Pattison leased his first vehicle through Jim Pattison Pontiac Buick. And since then, they've expanded and opened offices across the country, always with the goal of helping local business. They provide exceptional service through all their fleet solutions, whether that be leasing, expert industry knowledge, data capturing and online reporting, or fuel and maintenance networks. Jim Pattison Lease specializes in outfitting, so they can deliver your vehicle totally complete with equipment and decals and rust proofing. Basically, it's ready to go the moment it gets delivered. They provide personal service and flexible leasing options, offering lease structures and terms that will optimize your vehicle spend. They provide full support to your vehicle management cycle, including remarketing your used vehicles. The remarketing staff will ensure you're provided with the best opportunities to maximize the resale value on your lease returns. They also offer an online reporting system. It is effective and easy to use and a great way to manage your fleet of light duty cars and trucks. For the last 60 years, Jim Pattison Lease has grown because their commitment to their core values has not wavered. Those core values are integrity, quality, and customer service. These are the values that define the way they do business and the way they treat their clients. And we can personally attest to that. So whatever your fleet needs may be, we highly recommend you contact Wendy Ladd at Jim Pattison Lease. You can reach her at 416-417-5233 or wendy.ladd, that's L-A-D-D, at jplease.com. Again, it's 416 417 5233 or wendy.lad at com, And now back to Grant. All right. Welcome back, everyone. Um, so again, we're here talking with George. 
And uh, George, this podcast, I think, is really relevant because obviously we talked about the labor shortage before the break. And uh, the one thing that we can do is I think as contractors, most of us love equipment. We love iron. We love buying stuff. Uh, but typically, we don't necessarily do a really good job or have a right perspective on equipment. So can you tell us about, I think I heard you say the phrase, equipment ratio to sales and why it's so important. That's what tweaked me when I heard you say that. So can you explain your philosophy behind that? Sure. So um, basically... If you had $100 in sales, what percent of the sales cover the cost of the equipment, the fuel, the repairs, the maintenance, all of those things? And the goal is to lower that number or increase that number and lower the labor ratio. So I would rather have a bobcat take in you know, 30 yards of soil in an hour than have three people wheelbarrowed in in a day. And so the equipment is basically... Uh, one of the guys that uh, our truck broker that we use, um, Sean Locker, he, he basically equates equipment to mechanical employees. That's what they are. Yep. So you look at your employee as a, as a, your truck or your bobcat or whatever it is as like a person. And the question is, you know, is she skinny? Is she strong? Can she go fast? Does she break down? Is she sick? Like all those things, just like, just like a human being the equipment's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, does it make everything else better around it? So if you think sort of a team analogy, uh, you know, I used to talk about Wayne Gretzky. So Wayne Gretzky would score, let's say, 80 goals, right? And he'd have like 150 assists or something. But actually, the assists were goals because he was bouncing the pucks off people's bums into, into the net. And the guy who's standing in front of the net gets the credit for the goal, never touched the puck with a stick. Mm-hmm. And Wayne actually just makes everybody better. And equipment's the same way. So it's like having Wayne Gretzky on the team if you get a good one and it just makes everything better. And Wayne's cheap. So you pay a lot, but, but, but boy, does Wayne bring you some Stanley Cups and uh, some pretty exciting hockey. Okay. So you have a ratio, I think, that you work with in your company. And how would a contractor figure out their current ratio? How would they come up with that number currently based on the number? What, what numbers would they have to pull out of a profit and loss statement to kind of come up with a percent? So first of all, how you do your accounting. So there's what's called cost accounting and financial accounting. They're two different things. Financial accounting is geared toward taxes. And so it's geared with depreciation. And cost accounting is what's called return on investment. So ROI. And so ROI is measured differently. It's kind of the same thing, but measured differently. And depreciation is meant to uh, create tax revenue for the, for the government. So they, you, know, you bought a hundred dollar tool and they're going to let you depreciate it with $0 over five years. Therefore, 20%, if it's called straight line depreciation comes off and you can write that off as an expense. But for job costing, if you keep the equipment for 10 years, that wouldn't work because if you're using your financial statements to figure your pricing models in the fifth year, you could be giving your equipment away for free. Mm-hmm. So what you do basically is you take the total cost of, the, of whatever you paid for it, not including HST. And uh, you divide it by the number of years you're going to use it. You subtract what you're going to sell it for, right? And then you factor the interest in inflation. And that's your cost of operation per year. So return on investment per year. And so if you look at um, a person, let's say let's say a, a 20-year-old compared to a 40-year-old, compared to a 60-year-old, compared to an 80-year-old, compared to a 100-year-old, their value goes down over time. They just can't do as much. They're not as fast. 
Um, there are exceptions, of course, but the, the, if you understand what your ROI is, so what the cost of ownership of the equipment is, um, then you're less concerned about what you paid for it. Uh, you know, if the machine has very few breakdowns, it's worth way more. If I have lower repair costs, it's worth way more. If it's reliable, it's worth way more. All of those things factor into the ROI. And the goal is to, to have an effective ROI. And then when you sell your equipment to beat your ROI. So let's say I have, or even say I get a selling $100,000 and I sell it for $50,000 five years later, five years so that's $10,000 a year is my cost. Um, if I sell it for after two years for $24,000, then I beat my ROI. So that means I bought well and sold well, right? Or you can try and save money and pay $80,000 and sell it for $50,000, divide that by the five years and end up with a number that's below your ROI, which means you sold poorly and you bought poorly. Yeah. And so, so the trick also is in all of this madness, to create a fleet rotation schedule. And ironically, we're just as emotional about our equipment as we are about people. So when you have somebody in your company you love, you love them. And the same thing with your equipment. The difference is you can always get another piece of equipment. Like it's not like you're hurting its feelings or something, or, you know, it can't, it, it, that, that poor machine's not going to bring home bacon to the family, right? So we, we look at equipment the wrong way. The way I look at it is, is, is it effective? In other words, does it serve its purpose? Or not. And if it doesn't, it's gone. So there's no, I don't, you know, it's just that simple. And the qu other question is, am I prepared to lose money on the equipment? And the answer is absolutely. Because you don't see the cost of the ROI slowly killing you over time. Every year, that thing's worth a little less and a little less. So the goal is to try and trade that piece of equipment or get rid of it during its prime, prime time. And then, of course, it's going to give somebody else lower returns. So we almost always buy new. We do occasionally buy used, um, but we have a couple of used rules when we buy. Used is usually when someone else made a mistake. So let's say a company started out, they bought some equipment, they couldn't afford it, business goes badly. The utilization is incredibly low. It's a good brand. They've serviced it and they need to dump it because they need cash flow. Well, in that case, I'm sort of predatory in a way, and I take advantage of that, and I get a great deal. But generally speaking, I don't buy used unless I know I'm in a position of strength, and I don't try and bet the farm on a 90-year-old to, uh, to, to do my landscaping and shoveling for me, because maybe they can do it for a year. Pretty sure by the time they're 92, production's not going to be so good anymore. And uh, so that's how I look at used equipment. So George, how, so again, new versus used. So it's good. How do you know the sweet spot is for that piece of equipment? At what point do you have to say, because I think we, most of our owners, if I ask them that they say, well, when the repair bill becomes so much, that's when I need to dump it. Right. Yeah. So one thing is that um, downtime doesn't show up on your income statement, unfortunately. So it's a huge cost that you don't see. So the goal should be to sell the things before you like, so I actually, I break it down. There's repairs and there's maintenance, the two different things. So maintenance, I change the oil, I change the tires. That's not a repair. Repair is something really bad happened. And so you want to sell it before you have a repair. It's okay to have maintenance, but you want to sell it before you have a repair. You know, I'll give you an example. Let's say you had a diesel engine. Some of them after, you know, a quarter million uh, uh, miles or kilometers, 
can have some serious valve issues and all kinds of issues. And you're just taking a chance that it might make another 50,000 kilometers. And so, you know, we would sell it well in advance of that because we don't want to have the downtime. We don't want to have the repairs. We don't mind maintenance. I got to change the oil. You know, I've got to change the fluids. That's, that's normal. But repairs are what you want to avoid. So for trucks, typically around 100 to 120,000 K, provided you haven't beaten the equipment to death. So the analogy would be, uh, um, yeah, we're going to go hiking in the mountains. And uh, I'm going to put my 100-pound backpack on, um, you know, a skinny 100-pound um, worker, mm-hmm. okay? Or I can pick the 200-pound New Zealander who played rugby uh, or Aussie rules football, whatever it is, and it, they don't even feel it. And so, you know, when you buy cheap with your trucks and you buy the little skinny, skinny thing because you save money, that thing's going to break down on you for sure. It won't be able to do it or it'll do it poorly, or it won't last very long. So you're better off to buy way more than you need and then grow into it than to buy what you need and then beat it to death. So, so every time I never look at the price, I'm just not interested in the price. I'm interested in the value proposition. Um, and so will it do the work? Will it struggle? Will it not? Um, and the perception is hundred thousand K that's not that many kilometers, you know, 130, 140,000 K that's old and tired. Mm-hmm. So I'm 54. I'm kind of on the verge of getting old and tired. You know, when I'm 60, no one's going to hire me. Yeah. So it's kind of the so same knowing thing. that line, right? Of that. That's right. Okay. So at Oriole, do you guys have like a set line for all that stuff? Like if you have an excavator, skid steer, dump truck, do you guys have a kind of a line that you're like, as we talked like like flipping that stuff, like, you know, even like a plate tamper, like, do you guys sit there and say, we know that the value typically is at this set point yeah so so things like plate tampers basically we treat them as disposable so there is no resale it's like it broke it's not worth fixing it goes in a scrap metal bin okay um and we buy a new one because to me you know it's a couple thousand bucks it's not worth the hassle of trying to sell it but when we get into larger items say ten thousand and over that's when we start to think about um the life cycle value of the of the of the asset and um, a lot of people, when they first start out, buy used because they want to save money. But when you really think about it, everything you buy is actually rented. It's almost like you're renting it. And there's better rental rates. Like there's you know, short-term rentals, there's mid-term rentals and long-term rentals. But at the end of the day, you're just renting the equipment. And you want to kind of you know, pass the hot potato to somebody else before the, uh, they burn themselves. And so I kind of know when, when you know, after... You know, uh, we passed it around 10 times at around 11, I probably should be wary. Now, if somebody might get lucky for sure, right? mm-hmm. um, but they see the, they see the price. So at any given time I can buy anything and sell it for a certain discount, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So if I know that's true, that there's a buyer for everything at all times, and there has been you know, like 35 years recessions or not, it's, I've never not been able to sell anything ever. And so if that's true, then am I afraid of selling something um, because I'm afraid of buying something new because I have to make a commitment to something, but it would be way better, way more effective, way less frustrating, help the brand, help keep the employees, like all these soft benefits, or do I try and save money and try and run this thing into the ground? So, you know, cheap, I always look at savings as tactical and investing as strategic. 
And strategy generally beats tactics. Tactics is exhausting and you literally have to be, you know, uh, alert all the time. It's, it's, it's very tiring. So I'd rather play strategy and invest and then create a fleet rotation schedule that doesn't hurt my cash flow, reduces my risk profile. I have all new stuff. I have maintenance, but almost no repairs. So my repair bills are zero. I have no downtime. And I, I make more money than everybody else does on the equipment piece. And my people work less hard because they have better equipment. Mm-hmm. So how do you measure downtime? Like you, like you said, there's not, it's not a measurable, you can put in a PL statement, but is this something you have in your head? Like, Hey, if this traxel's down, it's, it's worth X amount or yeah, is that so, something? So I got the thousand dollar towing fee. We'll just start with that. Yeah. So, so, so I'm already really not happy and that's not a, that's not maintenance. That's a repair. Yeah. So now I'm, now I'm frustrated. Uh, now I get to call the dealer 10 times to find out when it's going to be fixed. Right. In the meantime, uh, my guys aren't getting what they need when they need it. So I got to use outside vendors. Now I'm not on the top dog list. So I'm getting poor service and my guys are standing around, uh, not producing like they could because the materials aren't coming quick enough. And so it's just this vicious cycle uh, plus the actual repair cost, right? So I got hit with a $20,000 repair cost and my truck was down for three weeks. And this, this has happened, right? This has happened. Like, I'll give you an example. I bought this Peterbilt truck and I should have bought a Cummins engine. I didn't. I should have bought the Allison automatic transmission. I didn't, right? And that probably cost me $50,000 because those brands have a perception of incredible. It's like your Apple iPhone. You know, you, you pay a huge premium for Apple and it functions like the other phone, but it doesn't matter. It just has way higher value, right? Mm-hmm. So that's sort of, you pay up front. You pay, you pay for the value, the service, the, the, you know, it's kind of cool to have an Apple, I guess. You know, you can be with all the cool people. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> go to the Apple store. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's just all these benefits and you don't have to struggle or suffer because it's there for you. It's serving you properly. So in that truck example, the $30,000, the $10,000 tow bill and the $20,000 repair was actually the, the smallest amount of cost. It was oh, all yeah. the other costs that oh, yeah. guys not Absolutely. having material, you know. Well, guys I, well the other problem too is now my truck driver's out of work for three weeks. So what do I do? What do I do mm-hmm. with him? He can't work now. So he's truck driver. Now I put him on the shovel. Now he really doesn't like me, right? Yeah. So there's, it, just, it just cascades into disaster. So okay. I kind of want to have it like, you know, when you work with somebody and you trust them completely, it's a relief, right? You just don't have any stress. Yeah. So when I look at a piece of equipment or a, or a person, it's the same view. You know, do you, do you, do you bring me relief and, and, and then kind of inspiration and hope? And, or do you kind of bring me down? Cause I'm scared of you. <laughs> so I don't like to be scared of my equipment or my employees. Okay. So George, let's go back to the scenario of a back of putting a hundred pounds on a, on a hundred pound person or putting on New Zealand rugby player. So w- what does that mean practically for a contractor? Like, what does that mean? Is that like the difference between a small frame skidster versus a large frame skidster or what, what, okay. what's that there? What does that explain that yeah. a little bit more to me? So, so I had a, uh, back in the day, I had a Thomas T one forty Bobcat. It was a five foot wide machine. And I was digging out a, uh, an area for uh, a patio for uh, Molson breweries. And anyway, it broke down. Surprise, surprise. So it broke down. So we had to rent a five and a half foot 
um, machine. I think it was a Bobcat at the time. And when I started using it, I'm like, oh my God, this is twice as fast. It's only six inches wider, but it's twice as fast. And the reason it was twice as fast is when I dug, it would actually, it, it wouldn't slide up. It would actually dig down because it had weight and it would sort of cut through it twice as quick. And then when I loaded over top of the dump truck, it would take me way less time to flip the bucket and empty the, empty the, empty the dirt. I wouldn't have to make ramps up to the truck to load the truck. And so very quickly for the balance of what I had to do, I got it done in half the time, plus the savings, the time going back and forth. And I realized, oh my God, like the correlation between the size, the six inches isn't like 20%. It's like a hundred percent. And so that's when that's, that was my first sort of subjective experience with it's $10,000 more for that machine than this one but it doesn't struggle. Right. I'm not, it does not, I'm not like not breaking down. I'm not overloading it and it's going to last longer and I'm going to have lower hours. So when I sell it, it's going to have a better ROI. So I paid the 10,000 up front, and it does way more work for me and it just doesn't struggle. It's not suffering. And um, so that's, that's the, that's basically my first anecdotal experience. Then when we started getting to bigger machines, you know, we would be lifting rocks and the, like literally the machines about the tip. I'm sure every, your, your audience there appreciates that. Right. So you're I thought we just thought, I thought we just got two guys in the back. Didn't we yeah. jump on the back of the machine to be as a counterweight? Is no. that what we were so, supposed so, to do? so we used to do that back in the day. Oh yeah. The unsafe and, uh, and not recommended. No, um, doesn't look that great for your marketing. No. Um, you know, safety one Oh one. Uh, so, so, the, but you're basically just beating it to death and you don't realize it because you don't see it. But three years later, it's just tired and it's going to let you down and you didn't save any money. You didn't save any money. And um, yeah, so we, we basically always overbuy uh, relative what we need because we know no matter what happens, if you do good work and you're semi-reasonably priced, you're going to get more work. It's just mm. the way it is. So if that's true, then you should prepare for the growth. One of the things you can do is buy a piece of equipment that um, fits your today's need as well as future need, provided the machine fits into where you need it. Okay. So buying the machine for kind of what your ideal client looks like and that type of thing. So, yeah. And uh, I mean, you know, in compact equipment, width is everything, right? That's the secret. So the goal is to get the widest piece of equipment that can lift the most to do the work that you need to do because you're carrying things around all the time. Um, excavators are a little different. So excavators, it's more about dig depth. It's more about lifting capacity for craning, that type of thing. Um, whether it's zero, zero turn, depending on where you're working or how good your operators are. And, um, you know, but once you get past 20 ton, it, it doesn't matter. Like typically you don't have any space issues. So 20 ton, 30 ton, it's irrelevant, but it, it, it's, um, safety is a big deal. The, the actual cost that you don't see the, the user friendliness, the, all those things just improve exponentially as you get something a little bit more robust. Okay. So, so as, uh, you're, you see, tons of businesses every year as a, as a consultant. And when you go and see their fleet, what are some things that you see that um, maybe that contractors aren't taking advantage of it when it comes to this type of stuff? Like, is there something that you're like, Hey, consistently these guys should be buying this or is it an attachment or yeah. like, talk about attachments? Like, you know, oh, like, yeah. again, is it, is it 
are they valuable to have versus rent or, you know, what do you see some trends out there that contractors, you wish contractors would do more of? Yeah. So one thing is um, when you buy an auger, you can spend an extra couple of thousand dollars for, let's say an auger that attaches to your excavator, your skid steer, and you can get mounting plates so you can use it for either. Um, But if you get a higher torque rating, then you can run like a 60 inch auger, for example which means that you can dig a hole for a tree, the tree saucer is done and it's done. Like it's perfect, perfect hole every time. Yeah. Um, so there's one example. Um, another example would be um, forks. Obviously when we used to, we were too cheap to buy forks back when we started the day. Forks are very valuable and useful. My favorite one are power wheelbarrows. So we buy the power wheelbarrows with flat bottoms. So we have a Yanmar, I don't know if they make one. I think Kubota makes one now. You can fold down the sides. You can literally put a skid of brick on it and drive the whole skid in. So what we typically do is we have excavators with flat buckets, so no teeth, and we dig so we don't overdig, right? So you're saving money. You don't disturb the subsoil. And then you can load those things like there's no tomorrow. So one power wheelbarrow trip is like three mini excavator trips. Mm-hmm. So one for three, you dig perfectly. You don't overdig. And um, you can drive them into the bin or dump in the road and have a bigger machine on the road to either load the bin or put the skid on the, on the track loader and drive it in rather than splitting skids. It's not just the size, but optimizing how your little brigade works. So I'd rather have less people than people splitting, you know, splitting s- sections uh, and have more equipment. And so I think people would work way more effectively if they would invest in equipment more than in more people. And then the person standing around half the time doing nothing. So, yeah, I love those power wheelbarrows with the flat bottoms that you can pull the sides down rather than those bucket ones, because then they can do dirt and carry um, materials. Material. Yeah. Okay. What about um, stuff like uh, a lot of the excavators we're seeing now have that tilt? Roto tilt. Roto tilt. What about yeah, those? Yeah. So we bought one for a job for 60,000 bucks on a 30 ton excavator. And we were placing five to eight ton rocks. And it's unbelievable. Like it's like having a hand. So again, if you're doing that type of work, a lot of it, skip the thumb, buy the roto tilt, um, get a big enough machine where it's not, you know, you're not tippy. Um, but they're they're phenomenal. I mean, you, you know, you can't smash things where you're gonna break your roto tilt. But mm-hmm. if you've got a somewhat careful operator, the productivity. Like we used to use chains and all kinds of crazy things. Um, This thing, literally, you can place it, rotate it, position it exactly the way you want, tap it, and it's done. It's it's unbelievable. Yeah, Mm -hmm. highly recommend those. Yeah, okay. So no more block under trying to get the chain out, pinching fingers and bars and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But again, as a piece of equipment and add on on that excavator, it's a fairly expensive as a percent of the original excavator price. It is fairly pricey, but you're saying it's worth it. Oh, well, so, well, here's an example. So when we, we sold our, uh, the, the, the attachment after we were done with it after six months and we bought it for 60 and we sold it for 40. So it cost me $20,000, right? Sounded like a lot of money, except for the fact that I had one person doing everything. So I didn't have extra people and I could do 10 times as much in a day for $20,000 for six months. It was way cheaper than having an employee there for six months. And so I'm not looking at the price. I don't care about the price. I just care about the cost. So, George, why do you think contractors struggle with this concept so much? 
Like what is just something that we were growing up? Was it something that our parents taught us? What is it that, that we are so focused on the price, the, the sticker price or, you know, the used equipment price? Yeah. So, so there's a couple of things. One is, um, so what I think there's a couple of things. One, obviously how you were brought up, right? So my parents came through the war and uh, they were always trying to save, like save, save, save. And uh, so I think that's one of the equations. The other is your psychological profile. Some people are more objective and some people are more subjective. So subjective person has to go through the bad experience to learn to say, yeah, that you're right. I'm going to do that. Right. So other people who are objective can say, oh, I can see that plus that equals that. Yeah, we should do that. And then part of it's fear, right? You're afraid to lose. Like you're, you're like, oh, it's so much money, but it's all relative. Like it doesn't matter where you, the relationship ratios are always the same. There, are, if you have a, you're trying to sell a $10,000 item or a hundred thousand dollar item, there's just as many motivated buyers proportionally to, to what you're trying to sell. You can sell anything anywhere. That's why auctions do so well. Auctions sell stuff all the time. So, you know, if you can, if you can come up with a metric where you say, okay, will this put me out of business? No, consider it. Okay. What is the downside risk to me if this thing goes south? $20,000. Can I afford that? Yes. Does it beat my ROI? Yes. So what happens, you start becoming an objective thinker and, and using numbers to, to create your decisions. And if you did lose money, lose, say you lost an extra five or $10,000, so what? Like, but if you don't try, you'll never know. And the other thing also people do is I had a bad experience, therefore I'm never going to do this again. Well, mm -hmm. that, the, that would mean that every time that you asked somebody on a date and they turned you down, you would never ask anybody to go on another date and no one would be married on the planet. Like that's yeah. what would happen, right? Mm -hmm. So just because you failed once doesn't mean you shouldn't try again. And, and it's not going to kill you. It's only yeah. money. You can make more of it. Mm -hmm. And the truth is those that do it well and start to understand the relationships of when to buy, what to buy, when to sell, you know, like don't try and not buy an executor without a thumb. Like don't save the money. It's a mistake. Um, you, you end up becoming a really good buyer and a really good seller. And it's, I'm always amazed that, you know, they always say there's, there's a buyer for everything. Well, it's absolutely true. Like there really is. It's, it's, it's after 35 years of, buying and selling, you know, probably 50 pieces of big equipment. I'm, uh, I, I can tell you subjectively that that's the case. And so I have no fear whatsoever of buying high and, and trying to sell high, like none. And worst case scenario, I, I lost 20,000 bucks. So what? Okay. How much does brand come into the factor when purchasing and selling equipment? So when you don't, but when you buy off brand, if they call, you call it off brand, you save money. And um, depending on the dealer and how good the service is and how good the parts supply is, that's a serious consideration. So you will save money, and uh, but you'll be able to sell it for less for sure. So I'll give you an example. I just bought a, a Gell 980 telescoping loader. So this thing lifts 17 feet high five and a half tons. Okay. So $150,000. Um, and the equivalent, uh, I think JCB is $200,000. Right. But I'm not going to have high utilization on this thing. And I'm going to take the hit on the other end. I know that. Right. So I didn't pay the 200 paid the 150 and I took a risk. 
Um, so I, because it's not a brand, I won't be able to sell it at a premium. I'm sure of it. Mm-hmm. Unless, unless that brand kicks in. But I did some research on that piece of equipment. And in Europe, they've got Manitou, which is huge out of France. And they're rave reviews. So I know I'm not going to have breakdowns. So in that case, I save money. But when I sell it, say the, the, the JCB I bought for 200, I can sell it for, let's say, 150. This, this thing, I'll, 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 sell, I'll buy it for 150 and I'll sell it for, let's say, 90. But, but the interest costs and its low utilization means that for me, that was a good value proposition. And guess what? If I'm wrong, I'll sell it and take my $30,000 hit and buy the JCB. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that I'm not going to try doing things. I do like to have the same equipment through the fleet if I can. The problem is like, say I like Caterpillar, they have no machines that are five feet wide or four and a half feet wide or three feet wide. So now, I have to, now I'm looking at Bobcat. Well, now I'm at Bobcat. You know, the, the John Deere's have, this is super cool, the, the articulating loaders, the real wheels also turn. So it's kind of like an articulating four-wheel steering loader. Mm-hmm. Which means the turning radiuses are like crazy, and 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 you're, you know, but it's it's like a it's like a thirty or forty thousand dollar premium. So I'm not prepared to pay the premium for that because the value proposition isn't there for me. Yeah. And uh, right now they've got a, a patent out on that particular feature, and when that expires, all the other companies are going to follow suit. Yeah. In 10, Ten years. Okay. So. Um, but generally speaking, I'm not afraid to pay a premium for a, for a premium brand. And okay. um, yeah. Is brand a perception that most, is it more of a geographical type thing? Like if you have a great cat dealer in the area and everyone's buying cat, or maybe if you had that, you know, your current zoom boom, if that was a big dealer in the area. So is it, is it typically there's just some data that goes with that? Or is it more just what people see as perception is? So there is, is a good brand. brand. There's geographic considerations. So in the U.S. especially, there's areas that are way stronger than other, other uh, brands in certain regions. And there's, you know, fewer, fewer dealers. It also like, it's just like, you know, in business, there's business owners that are better business owners than other business owners. So if you have a dealer that's a better run dealer than another dealer, you're going to have less problems mm-hmm. like at the end of the day. So the dealer, when you hire the dealer, it's the same thing as a Lansing business. Either you're hiring one that's well-run or one that isn't. And not all dealers are well-run. Yeah. So that's also geographic, whether it's a family business and, you know, we've got five, five kids that are all in the business and they're all, you know, born to be in the business. And they're all amazing. You're going to have a much better business than people where the salespeople are transient and going through, don't really know their stuff. The mechanics aren't that great. You know, it, it makes a huge difference. So okay. I think so it's reasonable just- to some yeah, degree, so- yeah. Yeah, so not just looking at the piece of equipment, but what's the service behind it and and what's the support behind it as well, right? So Absolutely, yeah. Good. All right. Anything else on the equipment side that uh, we didn't cover? Yeah, so I think the biggest takeaway is um, when to sell. Like, not don't wait too long to sell. It's okay to have maintenance. It's bad to have repairs. Don't ever avoid repairs. That's the best thing. Buy more than you need. And most of the brands are pretty good now, to be honest with you. Like there's way less junk out there now. Um, and uh, if you pay more, you'll get your money back, um, you know, later for sure. And uh, also the other thing too, I guess one of the considerations of the equipment is say something new comes out. So for example, when Kubota came out with their new track loaders, anytime something new comes out, I don't trust it. 
Mm. So you want to wait a few years for them to iron out all the kinks in real life. And so once they're proven and they fix the little, you know, weird things that, that always happen in a new, new, um, in a new model, uh, then you can jump in. So um, that's one of the other considerations. I'm always leery to buy something that's sort of a beta model and be the guinea pig. Yeah. My, my dad always taught me that. I'd love a new Ford Lightning, the new truck, the electric truck coming out, but that truck's got a, there's tons of people that have purchased it, like pre-ordered it already. But yeah, yeah the first year of that truck is going to be full of bugs, obviously. So oh, 100%. But it'd be great to have one for sure. But Yeah. Yeah. And somebody's got to be the leader, right? So it's interesting, right? So there's the early adopters, there's the, you know, the, the ones that come in behind and there's the late adopters, right? So there's benefits to being early. There's benefits to waiting. Um, it's not, it's not always black and white. And um, yeah, my business partner is one of those people that ordered so yeah. in the key to get one. <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing. Like it looks, yeah. the reviews on it or it looks amazing and stuff like that. But yeah, it's just kind of one of those things. So yeah, you, yeah, you got to see it tested. Yeah. 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 Sure. I'll ask, I'll call Peter after six months. And yeah, say, 100%. Peter, like, say, they'll go from there. So excellent. So George, tell us about uh, your coaching that you offer contractors. Um, tell them what, how you help a contractor, how it works. Uh, what do you help sure. them with? Yeah. So, so basically I'm a, I'm some, I'm a process guy, right? I'm not a financial guy. I understand money and things like that, but I'm a process guy. How do we get things done in the least amount of time? I'm a big believer in first principles thinking, which is based on Aristotle. And that's where's the foundation? What's the lowest fraction I can bring something down to? And then what's going to blow up along the way. And so we use that as our building models to do anything. doesn't matter what's an HR process. doesn't matter whether it's, a, um, a buying process, whatever it is, we map out all the steps, we figure out where all the blowups are going to happen, and we figure out ways to mitigate those blowups. And then we literally document it and create a system that you actually have to follow. So um, for the consulting, I create process for estimating, budgeting, the entire basically filing tree of your entire system. All those things are mapped out um, sequentially. Uh, in order of importance in operations. So if you can count, you can follow the system. And that's that's sort of how I roll. Okay. What is one process? Um, you obviously have done this with hundreds of companies. What are the first couple processes that you just always know that you're walking into with a contracting business? So there's a couple. Um, so there, I've got three three main ideas. There's what are called journey documents. There's aggregate documents and there's resource documents. So a journey document is something that collects stuff. An aggregate document is comparing stuff. And a, and a resource document supplies things. So when you create a, an organizational system, the goal is to, to, to have those three basic hubs. And then, you know, if you, if you put something in the wrong file somewhere, it's going gonna, it's gonna to get lost. Mm-hmm. So the first thing we do is we organize the, the client folder. What's the client folder steps? And we have like 12 steps to... Um, from taking the photographs to taking the surveys to taking the site photos to whatever it is. And they all have subfolders that everything gets put into so you can find it. So if like I'm sick, you could take over and say, oh, that was the last PDF drawing and the change was made. Or, oh, that's no longer an estimate. That's a contract. So even when people do estimates and they use all these different softwares and everything's all over the place, we always take the PDFs and file them into our filing tree in the client folder. And it's an estimate it's in the estimate section, it's a change order, it's a change order section, it's a contract, it's the contract section, it's numbered contract number one, two, three, four, whatever it is. 
and so you can find out where you left off. And so nomenclature, naming conventions, um, teaching people to be precise, Kaizen 5S, you know, it's the Home Depot concept, sort, set, and understand that. Those are the things that I tend to focus on um, to get people to be habituated uh, so it's not a struggle to be organized. You want to make organizing easy and to follow organizational systems. So that's sort of whatever it is, doesn't matter what the problem is. That's sort of how I look at everything and I start to, to roll out and do it. Okay. And what's the process for you to help them? Like, is it, is that something that has to be done in person? Like how often do you see the client? Like what is, like, how do you, how do you come alongside the client practically in this type of thing? Yeah. So, so uh, everything's basically zoom now. The only thing I do is I have clients, especially Americans fly in usually for like a half a day just to get a physical taste of what physical organization looks like the rest we can do in the cloud. Uh, and, uh, and typically what we do is we have, um, our system's pretty simple. So we've got, um, what we call our maps. So our map of our system is a, a map of the entire filing tree, uh, and meetings. So every single meeting is all the links and everything all set up with the agendas. Uh, then we've got the management, which is the five pillars of business, economics, HR, sales and marketing, technology, and finance, not necessarily in that order. Uh, and then we have the office, which is where all the work does, the client work, all that kind of stuff. Then we've got the field, we've got metrics, and we've got planning. So I always start with planning, and I have like 10 steps to planning. And, uh, and then that's broken down into 10 sub-steps. So first, I have to teach you how to think, and I have to teach you philosophy. I have to teach you what to do, what not to do. And, and what not to do is almost as important as what you do. <laughs> Some bad then, habits. If we have bad yeah, habits, what yeah. are you talking about? And the very last one is growth. Like you're not allowed to grow until all these things happen. So I mm -hmm. basically teach them this. And then we have a really cool document called who should do what, not who does what, but who should do what. And that document basically is a bar chart with all of the executive department management, client management, project management responsibilities. You basically assign squares to all the people that are doing all the things. You can start to see all the gaps or who's got too many responsibilities or we color code them, who's weak at a certain responsibility. So we start to identify where the strengths and weaknesses in the business are. We can plan out the next steps. We can understand the cost relationships to those changes. And then we translate that into, into budgeting. So we go to budgeting. We understand now we need, we have these things. These things are needed, right? And my favorite analogy is if you have a stool and it has three legs, it's not that stable. If the stool legs are skinny and they're not connected around the bottom, it's still unstable. If you have a fourth leg, it's a bit more stable. If you can connect them, it's even more stable. And if the stool legs are even thicker, even better. And if they're spread out a little bit more, even better. And if they're connected to the top surface platform, either even better. Mm -hmm. So every business is a stool. Some of them only have one leg. And uh, it can be a thick leg, which is better, but, but that's very unstable. And so the goal is to build a stable stool. And, uh, and then we check to see where the weakness is, which leg is weak, which leg is missing. And then how do we achieve getting that? So, so yeah. what your goal is to teach them all this philosophy so that they understand, because you're not going to be there for all of them. Cause like they could, they, it would just be forever, but you teach the philosophy on some basic things that they can go away and then anytime they do something new, they always trigger back to, hey, this is what we have to yeah, do. Yeah, here's this the method of work. Business. I'm here. This is what I need to do. Yeah. Here's the method of work. Here's the steps. 
everything's sequenced. Okay. Everything, like everything's numbered. That's the next step. And yeah. don't go to step five until you've done step four because the wheels are going to fall off the wagon. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's awesome. So the one thing I appreciate you, George, is that, you know, we see each other at, at industry events and stuff like that. And you're always learning so, or you're always sharing what you're learning. Um, and a lot of times I listen to you and I'm just like, man, alive. I just want to be inside that brain. But what are you currently oh, learning you from? <laughs> no, I do. Because it's just great challenging because. I do like you do think differently than than most yeah, contractors, and sure. I appreciate that. Um, and it's just a completely different conversation. I always I always walk away from our conversations, or even if it's just me sitting around a table and you're talking, um, they're just completely challenged. And I just and I and I appreciate that about you. So, but what are you currently learning from right now? Like, what are you reading? Uh, what are you learning from? So I do I do some really weird things. Um, like I watched a podcast with Lex Fridman. Uh, one with Elon Musk, and I watched one with George St. Pierre, John Daner, and I forgot the third guy's name. So these are MMA guys. Mm -hmm. And so, so I'm always perplexed by what, what does it take to be the best? And so this, this is what I fundamentally come up with. It's really simple. So EQ squared, so that's your emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. plus your IQ okay, in brackets, plus your experience, okay, plus your work ethic. And by the way, it's in that particular order. Okay. Over process equals optimization. Okay. Now, okay. the reason EQ squared is because if you're nasty and mean, you can't inspire other people to do anything. So it doesn't matter how smart you are, no one's going to want to work for you. Yeah. Right? And if the process is bad, so the lower the, the process number, the higher the numerator. So the numerator and the common denominator. So I'm like, well, okay. So I'm I'm given the EQ I have. I can only be more nice or friendly or whatever than I already am. That is what it is. I can maybe yeah. work on that, but you know, I'm not going to get that much smarter. Okay. Now the experience that I have, um, the goal is to compress the experience in the least amount of time, right? And then I have to work hard. Okay. So most people have it backwards. They work hard. <laughs> and they have poor processes. But I can tell you if the lowest number, so the process, let's say the process was a five and the top number was a 10, okay? You end up with a two. But if the top number was a five and the bottom number was a one, you end up with a five. Mm. So the one thing that I can control and most people are a disaster on is process. Mm -hmm. So my entire focus on everything I do is process. So my, my role is chief improvement officer. And basically all I work on is process. That's it. So my other equation, favorite one is um, that used to be people, culture, process, people, process, culture. But in fact, I realized that's not the case. It's process on the bottom leadership, right? Mm -hmm. And then we have people and then so we have kind of, yeah, you're kind of drawing a diamond, right? The process is the bottom and the two points are the people's right. process. Yeah. 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 So, so what I realized is, okay, so leadership, you know, leadership, are you a natural born leader? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I'm not a very good leader, but I'm good at making process. Mm -hmm. So I would rather focus on what I'm good at. And I, I just want to win, not individually, but as a team. So my whole concept is optimization, not win, lose. Mm -hmm. And so if I can make your life less frustrating 
I can make you work less hard so you don't blow your back out, um, then I'm going to have a great place to work. And so in our company, our company and the companies that I consult are the experiments. It's, uh, I want to make the world a better place. If somebody asks me, why do you do this? It's not for the money. No way. It's because I'm motivated by intrinsic value because I only have one life and I don't need that much more money, but I can certainly help people. And yeah. so process to me is my gift. I can help with that in a unique way because I do think different. Um, and most people hate it. So <laughs> it's great for me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, so one of the other questions I, I sent you was what is one habit or book that's impacted your business life? Um, and then I'm going to throw another, um, because you think so differently that the book or whatever habit it is, but the second one I want to follow up is what's, what do you think one book or habit most contractors need to have? in order to succeed, like to, for that, again, if most of us are weak on processes or something that you could help us, like, if you're going to read anything, here's one thing, or here's a habit. So what has been your life and what do you think most contractors need? So, so I'm actually going to Europe to write a book in uh, in a month about okay. process. <laughs> so, cause I've read a lot of books and most of them aren't very good. Uh, one of the things that on process, so there's a book I read called the surrender experiment. And it's about a guy who just goes with the flow. And so rather than getting bent out of shape and something bad happens, you just go learning moment. And so we're so hard on ourselves. We beat ourselves up so badly. We basically are hard on ourselves unnecessarily. And so the trick is to seek knowledge. So you become wise. Wisdom is the ultimate goal. I think that's what it's not how smart you are. And you don't have to be that smart. You just have to be wise. And wisdom can come the hard way through hard earned experience or through, ironically, the things that you're doing are unbelievable. Imagine the number of people you've touched and you've given them knowledge that they can, they can put to use and save themselves some grief, right? Mm -hmm. so, so wisdom, networking, collaboration, not being your own little bubble, Landscape Ontario, you know, peer groups like you have, all those things are really very, very powerful. And so anyway, this book, The Surrender Experiment, is about a, a guy who, who just goes with the flow. And I thought it was so refreshing. Rather than fighting things and having expectations, um, yeah, you got to have some goals. But, you know, try it out. You know, buy that piece of equipment, sell it, maybe lose some money, maybe make some money. Um, but try and figure out before you do it what the upside and downside is mm -hmm. and pull the trigger. It's not going to put you out of business or kill you. Yeah, you can try it. And that was one of the it's sort of like a, a relief because I'm hard on myself. Yeah. And we all are, unfortunately. So yeah, we are we're typically our hardest critic, right? Or yeah, I think you see, do see that so many times. And I think even during this time period we're going through now, right, with COVID, is that people are just so hard on themselves, right? And it's there's so much in the world that we can't control, um, but that gets us down and a lot of people we see just freeze, right? They're just frozen and, and they just don't know what the next step is, that first step. So, okay. And then what would be a book? What would be a book that you would recommend on a general contractor that's part of a landscape, you know, Ontario, or what's a great book that you think that would, that would so, change their lives? So I, I, I think. Or habit, I guess. I, I think uh, one of the books that I read was How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And again, it goes to who am I and what kind of world do I want to live in? And so as I get older and I get wiser, 
I reflect differently on things. It's not about how much money I'm going to make. It's about what's my legacy. And um, if we could think that way earlier, the world would be a better place. And so the idea of treating people thoughtfully and understanding that they, um, they are motivated uh, by different things, they have different problems that sometimes your behavior doesn't match your intention. Um, and um, so I've been doing less reading, more podcasts, I would say recently. And then li- listening to amazing people talk about being honest with themselves. And uh, yeah, I, 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 so I would say, I, I would say less books and more podcasts, I would say uh, have really started to influence me. Yeah. Um, oh, was- and then on Sirius Satellite uh, uh, Radio, there's a channel called, uh, I think it's 132, the business channel. Okay. And so they have unbelievable topics that these, you know, some of them are extraordinary people. Some are the ordinary people. Mm-hmm. So we forget about the ordinary gems, right? So in the landscaping business, it's an ordinary business, but there's some extraordinary people mm-hmm. and uh, you can learn an awful lot from them. And mm-hmm. that's the, that's the other magic that it's not just the Einsteins and the, and the, uh, Elon Musk's the world. There's all these amazing little people doing amazing things. You just don't hear about it. Mm-hmm. And that's what the the purpose of the podcast is, right? Like I've had the pleasure of sitting down for dinner with you and listening to you share some of these ideas. And, and a lot of times I just walk away, I would come home and my wife would be like, how to go. And I was like, great. I just wish there was 20 other contractors that could sit around the table and to hear that, you know, that person's story or, you know, just be able to hear that. And that's, like I said, that's the reason for the podcast is we want more people to hear your story and what you've right. gone through. Um, because again, we want to give back, right? We, we do see this industry growing so much right now and how professional is and how it's come, but it's, um, you know, it's people like yourself, you and Peter that have paved the way for younger contractors like myself to come along and, uh, you know, to be able to do that and, and to have the opportunity to be consolidation and all that type of thing. So, yeah. The last comment I was going to say was one of the, so my son is, um, is getting a master's in philosophy and then he's getting a master's in psychology. So he's influenced me. So the younger people are influencing me a lot. And as I start to compare myself to other people, but not in a bad way, I realize I'm more of a thinker than a doer, mm-hmm. right? So some people do really well. Like they, they have lots of money and they all these things. And, and, and that's a type of living. But I tend to think more. So I'm, I'm less interested in the doing and more interested in the thinking. Mm-hmm. And so it's sometimes so I figured a way to turn my thinking into something practical. Yeah, which my whole life I have not been able to do, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of interesting to, again, be, understand yourself and um, and uh, and then learn from others, right? That's and spread the gospel, just yeah, just like what you're doing. Yeah, Mark. Okay. Last question before we let you go: uh, What's one thing you're currently thankful for? I'm I'm gonna twist that one on you. I'm thankful and disappointed. I'm thankful that this COVID thing is ending. I, I realize now that we label people one way or another, and it's unnecessary. And the goal is to try and get people to want to do something instead of telling them what to do. And so um, I'm, I'm, hope- I'm hoping that we all become more understanding of each other's, each other's viewpoints because there's no right or wrong. It's just your perspective. And there's a cost to everything and trade-offs, but we can't impose our will on others. And, you know, the whole, I was in Ottawa actually um, recently and I, and I just felt awful 
for everybody, like all around, whether it doesn't matter what side of the spectrum you're on, it's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. This is just so sad. So from the perspective of optimization, how do we get the best outcome overall? And I think that's through, through positive persuasion rather than through um, the, the, the carrot is more powerful than the stick. It requires more work, but the fruits of it are much better in the long term. And I think that's the lesson that I've taken away from some of the things that I've seen and it's changed my thinking. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that maybe, you know, I think as Canadians, we were so... Um, you know, I think I, I thought we were, you know, so tolerant of people's opinions, right? And I think COVID has taught us that. I don't think we're as tolerant as we thought we were, right? Like, no. you know, to see families being separated, to see loved ones being separated, like just again, just, you know, again, your choice of whatever you want to do, but it just doesn't seem like we've had the same patience or the, uh, the same tolerance for people with a different opinion on whatever the topic is, whether whatever it's it is. A, Right. And it's just, it's almost a bit scary because I maybe, you know, is that just human nature in us that that's there? And and we just haven't had to see that in a long period of time uh, as Canadians. You're right. Yeah. I think it is human nature. And the trick is to use our minds and wire and train our minds to see the world differently. So I'm there, I'm talking to some truckers who are protesters and they're nice people. Mm -hmm. They're just like you. You might be a pro-vax and whatever, they're nice people yeah and they just think differently now i'm vaccinated but the fact of the matter is it really got me i got to see a human being face to face talk to them and go hey you're all right yeah for sure now and i was kind of sad that all this stuff happened and you know just want to optimize that's it yeah so okay um again george you sent us links to your how to contact you we're going to put them in the link below so if you want to contact george um, feel free to reach out. He can help you with your company. He's got years of knowledge. Um, just a great conversationalist. And George, thank you so much uh, for joining us today, for taking the time. And uh, we look forward to talking to you soon. Thanks, Grant. I really appreciate it. Hi, friends. Before you go, we want to tell you about an event we're holding for Design Build Contractors. We have partnered with Frank Bork, to bring you two days of valuable information on how to increase efficiency and profit in your design build business, and then how to scale it. Mark your calendar for March 21 and 22 at the Millcroft Inn and Spa in beautiful Caledon, Ontario. Frank will be providing you with practical, tried and true information to get you going on the right foot this spring. You'll interact with other design build business owners and managers and learn about the five stages of business. You'll walk away with a plan and the information and resources to implement it. On top of that, you'll stay in beautiful accommodations and experience excellent food. You may even want to consider bringing your spouse to this event. The location is that lovely. For more details, visit nextraconsulting.ca slash events or email us at events at nextraconsulting.ca. We hope to see you there.